Hi, friends. Welcome to True Crime with Ivana Estelle. And Happy New Year. Honestly, I took some time off and now my schedule is all screwed up. But since the holidays, I've been listening to other podcasts and I realized as a listener, it's time to get my ass in gear. I hope you have had a lovely holiday season and you are entering 2024 in good spirits. I am so excited to be back with you all. I have missed you oh so much. So let's get down to business, shall we? The case we are covering today is still in the realm of betrayal. To be honest, I think I'm going to stick around this topic for a while. It's important that I share these cases because, to be frank, so many murders and assaults are done by people that know each other or are connected in some way. And that means that betrayal is never far behind. In this case, I'll ask you to be the judge on... What teeters between betrayal and insanity? When an ordinary family is torn to shreds by an act so heinous, it'll leave you wondering, was this impulsive or planned? This is the case of the Swartz family. You know how true crime stories always describe families as the perfect family? I have a question. Do you know a family that does portray themselves as that? Is there a family, whether you see them on social media or they're your childhood neighbors that live on the street? Maybe it's you, listener. You and your siblings and parents came off perfect to everyone else. Or you and your spouse and kids have this curated Christmas card that goes out every year that others look at with either awe or slight discernment. Whatever the case, I'm here to tell you what you already know. Perfection does not exist. There are things that look like on the outside they glitter, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily are gold. On the other hand, happiness and fulfillment is possible. When building a family or starting a new business or going into school or getting engaged, we should invest in things that we believe are going to make us better people. For Bob and Kay Swartz, expanding their family and adopting was a step in a positive direction. And on the outside, it all really made sense. It's the winter of 1984, and Bob and Kay Swartz are nestled in their suburban home in Cape St. Clair in Ann Arundel County, Maryland. Cape St. Clair was your typical quaint suburban area with parks and beaches, a shopping center, Broadneck High School, Cape St. Clair Elementary School, the Harbor School, and a Cape St. Clair swim club. It's the type of place that would probably have been the setting for the Babysitter's Club books. Bob and Kay had created a life for the two of them. They prided themselves on being good people. They were religious, and their beliefs rang true in every decision they made. Bob was originally from Pennsylvania and moved to Milwaukee, where he started his career. Eventually, he went into the business of owning laundromats. A little later on, he met Catherine, and the two fell in love. They were actually 
post-grad sweethearts? Well, kind of. See, Catherine had been born in Iowa. She was incredibly intelligent. She was valedictorian of her high school class and really poured into her education. She went to college at Maycrest College in Davenport, Iowa in 1962, and then went to grad school at the University of Colorado. Eventually, she left to continue her graduate work in Mexico and even learned to speak Spanish fluently. Ultimately, she graduated from the University of Maryland with a master's degree in English. And she inspired her family, too. Her nieces and nephews also were really big on education. But let's go back to UMD for a moment. The campus is absolutely huge. It was then, and it is now. She happened to meet Bob while she was in the parking lot replacing her car window. He offered to help her, and the two shook up a conversation. The rest is pretty much history. Bob had actually returned to Milwaukee shortly after where he owned all those laundromats. He ended up selling his business and then returned back to Maryland, which that is the energy I am talking about. Fall in love with me, sell your business, and move to where I live. Hello? Catherine went by Kay. She was tall and she had three sisters and a brother. And Robert, or Bob himself, just had a stoic look to him. Kay and Bob were married at the Catholic Church in Bowie, Maryland. And by this time, it was the 70s. Kay had spent a lot of her time teaching, and Bob ended up getting a really incredible job working as an engineer for NASA. They had had this meet-cute, grow, really understand-each-other love, and the relationship born between them was just genuine. And at this point, they wanted their love to expand. They were settled into their suburban home, and they were ready for children. One thing that Bob and Kay really had in common was their faith in God, their religion. It was really important to both of them. They had pretty strong views. For example, they were heavily involved in the right to life movement. Despite their beliefs, the couple were unable to have children on their own, so they decided to adopt three foster children through a Catholic charity. By this time, Kay was teaching at a local high school, and Bob would spend his time commuting to and from work. The sorts were clear that they wanted to adopt children who had come from troubled backgrounds to give them a better life. At the time, the couple were known as basically model citizens. They ran marriage counseling sessions at the Catholic Church and did activities that were basically an investment to the church and to their community. It also made them want to adopt kids that they hoped they could influence. They had dreams for their children to be invested in the church just like them. It wouldn't take long for Bob and Kay to find their three children and fall in love with all of them, each with their distinct backgrounds. Michael was the oldest. He was adopted at around seven or eight. He struggled with discipline. He constantly butt heads with his adoptive parents. He'd come from a rough background and struggled with adapting to a new environment that had rigid rules and expectations. Michael had bounced from seven different foster homes. He was beaten in many of them. He was known to be kind but incredibly disturbed, frightening, and was described as haunting. However, 
Bob and Kay didn't have an issue with their other two children. Not really, anyway. Ann Lee was the youngest. She was originally from Korea, and she just had the sweetest smile. When everything would occur that faithful night that I'm going to talk about, Anne would be just a child, no older than 10. And then there was Larry, who was actually on the same age as Michael. Larry may have had it the toughest of all, if you can compare the backgrounds. However, he and Michael were pretty similar in terms of trauma experience. Larry was found basically in a dumpster in Silver Spring, Maryland. Silver Spring now is much different than in the 70s. Now it's home to local movie theaters, lounges, and high-rise apartments. Back then, things were different. Larry's parents were a teen mom and essentially a pimp for a father. Larry would eventually be rejected from four different foster homes after going into the system, and it would be for various reasons. Bedwetting, hoarding food, being, quote, too hyper, and just also being too aggressive. But once Larry was adopted by the Swartz, he was around seven, similar to his brother Michael. Unlike his new brother, he felt it was important to be mild-mannered and just follow the rules in order to keep a bit of stability in his life. Now, I'm not very aware of the foster and adoption system. I don't necessarily understand how how foster parents can return children. It feels like it does more harm than good. I mean, children aren't like food at a restaurant. I don't see how you can return it if it doesn't mesh with you. I know of adoption success stories and foster stories where parents really stuck around to do the positive work in making their house a home. However, we know of so many stories where kids are placed in the system and whether they end up with a forever family or not, that feeling of being unwanted or confusion and security or wanting to know where you came from, all of these things are a part of a child's psyche in some way or another. I'm serious when I say as an adult, thinking about the Stuart Little movie, with the system being the way it is, why the fuck did we think a movie about a family deciding to adopt a mouse instead of children looking for a home was a good idea? Like, why was that a family comedy? There is so much trauma that comes into the system, whether giving up a child or having a child have to leave their home or the risk of being with parents unequipped to raise kids. It's heavy. We can only hope that the best intentions are shown and given because every kid deserves to grow up in a household where they feel safe and valued. There is lifelong damage when anything less is brought into the equation. In the Swartz family, there was a clear disparity. Michael grew up and was outspoken. He would sneak out and party in his teen years. He was known to talk back to both of his parents. And Larry would try his best to keep the peace. But this also meant keeping a lot of pain to himself. Larry did have one healthy outlet, and that was his relationship with his sister, Anne. He doted on her and took care of her greatly. He loved her so much. Anne had that mushroom haircut little kids get, and she had the chubbiest cheeks. It's strange describing her as a baby because she's an adult now and is obviously very self-sufficient. Larry and Anne went everywhere together. 
Larry protected her. To the community, Bob and Kay Swartz were well-respected godly people. They'd taken in these three children, and the family was this eclectic bunch. However, at home, things were different. And it wasn't just due to Michael acting out. Kay and Bob were very strict at home. And believed in the saying, spare the rod, spoil the child. They would use physical punishment to get Michael and Larry to behave and act obediently. And most of the time would hide to avoid any confrontation. Bob in particular was physically, verbally, and emotionally abusive. He would beat Michael the most and threaten to send the children back to social services if they acted out of line. As the years went by, Michael refused to bend, and it isn't clear, because this is 1984, if Michael was being extremely out of line or if he was being a typical teenager, pushing the limits with parents, experimenting. Listen, at 16, I was definitely a handful, but I sit before you a normal adult now. So was Michael terrible, or was he just terrible to the strict Swartz parents. Well, once Michael was 17, he had snuck out yet again. Only this time, Bob and Kay had had enough. They locked the door and later called social services to have Michael stay with another family. Unfortunately, Michael ultimately ended up at a reform school, and after getting into trouble there, he was sent to a state mental hospital for evaluation. Michael wanted his parents to love him, but he was just struggling so much. It didn't seem like a relationship was a possibility. In fact, it was to the point that Bob and Kay had written Michael out of their will. They were done. Larry then had become the focus of his parents. The dynamic had quickly changed in the house. There was no, quote, bad child anymore, and Larry was the one under scrutiny. He was in the spotlight now. His parents doubled down on their rigidness. Larry was only allowed to go to church and school. He wasn't allowed to see his friends. And all the while, his frustrations just began to continue to build. He was truly becoming a prisoner in his own home. His punishments became more extreme. And Larry became more resentful. I mean, Bob and Kay were tough. Larry wasn't allowed to watch Superman because it didn't align with their religious beliefs. The kids could swim in the pool they had in the backyard, but weren't allowed to splash. If Larry's grades slipped, he would lose whatever little privileges he had. He had to get straight A's in order to get his license. He wasn't allowed to date either. Bob and Kay were very worried that he would partake in premarital sex, which naturally would only push a teenager closer to wanting to date. He ended up falling in love with a girl named Sarah. They would sneak and get dinner or go see a movie. They also, of course, ended up eventually having sex. Larry realized there was a life outside of the strictness of his home. He wanted to experience freedom. At this point, Larry and his parents were officially at odds. Kay Swartz didn't like Larry's girlfriend. She called her awful, derogatory names. And on January 16th, 1984, another fight ensued. Kay and Bob continued with how angry they were with their son, Larry. He was distracted by his relationship and wasn't doing well in school. 
Larry tried to speak up, saying he did well on one test, but not the other one that he'd taken that day. To which Kay replied, well, with sarcasm. And Larry retreated to his room, cozying himself up with a bottle of rum he'd gotten from a neighbor. That night, the house seemed quiet, but the next morning, it would be clear that something violent had happened, and two of the four sports would be dead. The 16th in general had been a regular day. It was a Monday, and the first snowfall of the year had occurred. Kay, Larry, and Anne were actually home early from school that day because of the snow. Kay was a teacher at Brodnick High School, and neighbors didn't recall anything seeming out of the ordinary. They hadn't even seen the children playing outside in the snow, and they definitely didn't hear any violence. So on the 17th, when they were awakened by the sounds of sirens, it was quite a sight. A complete flip from the early morning of the 16th, where Kay, Larry, and Anne puttered around on their way to school. The 17th, however, was a gruesome vision. When a call shook the Anne Ardell County Police Department. Around 7 a.m., the Cape St. Clair emergency workers were rushed to the Swartz home. Larry stood in the front yard holding Anne, her legs and arms wrapped around him. Inside was as brutal a scene as anyone involved in the investigation said that they could remember. Robert Swartz was found in the downstairs club room, stabbed repeatedly. Kay Swartz lay nude in the snow outside of the club room's sliding glass door. There were stab wounds on her body, and her head was split open. Her blue pajamas were found in the house. There are a couple sources that say that Kay was also sexually assaulted, and without being able to confirm, I can say being left out in the snow completely naked is sexual assault, whether something further occurred or not. The dispatcher explained that when she received a call, it was Larry on the other end, but he was incredibly calm. He said that he thought his parents were dead. In fact, he was so calm that the dispatcher didn't think he was serious. Nevertheless, police and an ambulance arrived. On the scene, it was a different story. Larry and Ann were visibly shaken up. Bob was found dead. And the club room also seemed to appear or double as like a basement office. Different sources call it different things. So I'm assuming it was your basement that might have like you know, your club room, place to hang out, as well as a home office. Bob had cuts on his chest and arms, and Kay was laying lifeless in the snow. It didn't take long for police to find the murder weapons, which included a steak knife and a wooden maul that was used to hit Kay. A maul is also known as an axe, and that axe split Kay's head open as well. Larry told the emergency respondents that his sister had woken him up after she couldn't find their parents. Then he had spotted Kay outside in the window in the backyard, and they immediately called for help. Who could have done this? According to Larry, he had retreated to his room that night. He drank and fell asleep. Sure, he and his parents had their ups and downs, but they gave him a home and he wouldn't want anything bad to happen to them. Police continued to investigate, noting that both Kay and Bob had their legs spread while laying down. It wasn't 
natural. It looked like the killer had spread their legs apart on purpose. It suggested a sexual nature to the crime. Furthermore, there wasn't anything missing, like no stolen items. It didn't seem like a robbery, just a brutal attack. Bob and Kay were known in their community to be kind, religious people. They didn't have trouble with the law. I mean, Kay was a teacher. She dealt with high school students, but nothing really panned out to have anyone have a motive to kill her or her husband. And furthermore, whoever did this, they left two children inside, alive and untouched. The investigative team led by homicide detective Gary Barr of the Ann Otterdale County started looking for evidence within the house. But I mean, the house was covered in blood. But those blood marks, specific ones, stood out to them. See, there was a bloody palm print on the glass window. And Kay's hands had been clean. No blood found. Bob had died in the basement, so he never had a chance to even go up the stairs to where that sliding glass door was. There was a trail of footprints from Kay's body that led them to the mall or axe. And that was usually used to cut wood nearby in the snow. However, this time, it had hair and blood on it. But its handle had been wiped clean. Police figured this was the murder weapon that was used to hit Kay on the head. She had punctured wounds on her neck that had cut through her voice box, making her unable to scream. Police interviewed Larry first, and he seemed pretty matter-of-fact. Larry was unemotional and detached, to the point where police told him it's okay to cry. To which Larry replied, My parents are dead, aren't they? Larry explained that he went into the dining room that morning, saw his mother, and called 911. Later, he would say that he went to the kitchen and saw his mother laying there and called 911. Now, granted, the home was only but so big, so whether the dining room or kitchen, Larry did explain that he looked outside, he looked through a window, and he saw his mother. Larry also told one officer he went downstairs to the basement, but told another officer something different. The detectives found his account strange and inconsistent. But remember, this is the 80s. I don't even think DNA evidence could be used yet. And all police had was a bloody palm print. When Anne was interviewed, she explained waking up because of a noise. She looked into her dad's office and saw Bob's lifeless body on the floor. She recalled seeing a figure standing by the sliding door and her mother's lifeless body, but went back upstairs, unclear if she was in a dream or if this was a figment of her imagination. Police also found some other strange evidence. See, in the family washing machine, Police said that they found wet jeans and a gray sweatshirt marked Broadneck. Police said Anne told them that she'd seen that figure. And the figure was a boy dressed in jeans and a sweatshirt, standing with an axe near her mother's body during the night. Of course, the next question was, who was this figure? And we have Larry and Anne accounted for, but where is Michael? 
he'd been estranged. And it wasn't even clear if he'd been notified about his parents' murder. Police were not sure where to look. I mean, this double homicide was brutal. During interviews with friends and families, it didn't take long for them to uncover some truths about what went on in the household, including how Bob and Kay's estranged son, Michael, felt about his parents. He articulated to friends and family that he would and could murder his parents. He had once even threatened to murder his parents face to face, telling Kay that he would, quote, walk up to Bob and stick a knife in his back and kill him. That wasn't all, though. See, Bob and Kay were pro-life, so much so that they were known to picket outside of abortion clinics or doctor's offices. Could this have been a murder in retaliation? Yeah, I know that sounds like a fucking stretch. What about Michael? I mean, he was MIA, and we do know that he was mistreated by the Swartz. And then the handprint. Who did it belong to? One week later, in a document filed in County Circuit Court, detectives said they found a detailed shoe print matching Larry's deck shoes in the snow near his mother's body. The deck shoes themselves contained blood. Lab tests on the blood hadn't been completed yet. Larry had mentioned his brother being taller and more violent. This was during questioning with the police. And so police started to wonder, could Larry and Michael have been the same shoe size? Maybe Michael came in the house and did this. But the motive outside of not getting along with his parents just fell off. I mean, Michael was disturbed, but he was cut out of the will, cut off from the family. In fact, the only person that kept in touch with Michael was Larry. It didn't take long for police to find Michael, and he had an alibi. He had once again been in a mental facility, the Crownsville Hospital Center. And on the 16th in particular, he was in lockdown due to an incident in the facility. Police knew this was some sort of inside job. I mean, there was no sign of a break-in. There were no weapons left in the home. And police began closing in on a new suspect, Larry. See, that handprint? Well, the prints came back. And they matched Larry's. Bob and Kay's funerals were held in Maryland. Catherine K. Swartz was 43 years old at the time of her death, and Robert Bob Swartz was 52. Three days later, Larry was brought into questioning again. He sat across his attorney, Ronald Baradell, and explained what happened that night. Larry was angry. He was tired of the relationship with his parents, and his girlfriend, Sarah, was the one good thing he had in his life. Well, of course, outside of Anne. Kay had spent that evening berating him about Sarah, berating him about his grades. So he wanted to put an end to it once and for all. He described stabbing Kay in the throat that her breathing just sounded like screaming and he wanted her to be quiet and not wake the others. He dragged her outside and took off all her clothes before grabbing a nearby axe and swinging it into her skull. Larry then went into the home to confront Bob. A struggle ensued, but it would be Larry to overpower his father. He used the same kitchen knife to stab Bob everywhere, puncturing his throat, arteries, and stabbing him repeatedly 
anywhere between 17 to 30 times. Larry had so much rage. He had an incredible meltdown. He just broke down and couldn't stop himself. Larry felt he had this out-of-body experience, like he was watching himself kill. He was having a psychotic episode. He described feeling almost animalistic and even blacking out at some points. Larry explained that he had only taken Kay's clothes off in order to get rid of the evidence, which leads to one question. You had this mental breakdown, but knew to clean the weapons and get rid of all the evidence you could. Furthermore, the position of both parents were sexual, and the assault on Kay ended up showing some sort of finger violation to Kay's private areas. Psychologists believed because Kay had emasculated Larry, he wanted power and to humiliate her. This was clear that Larry was a deeply disturbed young man, but did it also show signs of premeditation? Or was it something more? Anne, as an adult, was asked what she believed. Granted, she was only about eight years old at the time that everything occurred, but she believed that Larry was trying to protect her. Anne would confess that Bob Swartz was sexually abusing her. This could also explain the sexual nature that was shown in both murders. Leg spread, defiled, humiliated. The motive could have been a psychotic break. It could have been an act of protection. It could have been both. During the trial, a lot of things came up. According to the Washington Post, every Saturday morning for three years until his death, Bob Swartz picketed the Annapolis Planned Parenthood Clinic. He and... Another partner were the only picketers. Bob Swartz's strictness towards his children showed up mostly in his dealings with Michael, according to neighbors. The brothers would get into trouble, but mainly it was Michael. By the time Michael was in his early teens, his parents would punish him by locking him out of the house and making him stay on the front porch for the entire day. This then transitioned into... Larry experiencing the same type of abuse. Larry made 10 visits to the emergency room at Ann Arundel General Hospital in the last 6 to 10 years that he was in the custody of Bob and Kay Swartz. According to hospital records that were subpoenaed by police. However, Ann Arundel County State Attorney Warren Duckett said that the records revealed injuries common to normal childhood skirmishes. The Swartzes had wanted Larry, a former altar boy, to become a priest. And two years prior, they'd sent him to a seminary school in northeastern Pennsylvania. Larry was known as a good kid, a soccer star, who worked part-time jobs and looked out for his younger sister. And now he was facing life in prison. Judge Bruce Williams, who was presiding over the case, called the case, quote, probably one of the most tragic cases that has ever occurred in this county and possibly in the state of Maryland. Jury selection had been scheduled for the first degree murder trial and Larry Swartz had pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. But at the last minute, Larry, who was now 18, 
had changed his plea to guilty of second-degree murder. Judge Williams sentenced Larry to 12 years in prison and recommended that the time be served at the Petunin Institute, which treats mentally ill prisoners. That's right. In the end, Larry Swartz got only 12 years for killing his parents. But that's not all. He only ended up serving nine for good behavior. He was about 27 when he got out. And I'm not sure if that nine years included the 15 months he had to wait to stand trial. We know the jury found him guilty, but it's also not clear if they had a say in the sentencing. There were obviously mixed reactions. The truth of Larry's life and upbringing was revealed in a public press conference. And during his trial, his brother Michael sat on his side of the courtroom. Kay and Bob's family were not pleased with the outcome, calling it way too lenient. Anne was sent to live with family, and her life took readjusting as well. She would be about 18 when her brother got out of prison and had experienced custody battle issues amongst her family. Now, I don't know what is happening in Annapolis, Maryland. I've been. The area is very nice. Well, nice enough. I'm not saying commit murder there. But I do think that there was leniency or consideration just in what Larry had endured in his life. On the other hand, I know tons of people with strict parents, especially as it relates to cultural background, and their kids do not wish violence on their parents. I do note that Larry was well-liked. He was handsome. He was young. And that could have also appealed to the public. I know there are many cases, and I'm sure you can think of some, where leniency should have been given but wasn't. Bob and Kay were extremely strict, and with the allegation of abuse, Anne was at least out of the home and away from sexual violence. In the end, Larry was looked at as someone who snapped and wouldn't be a danger to the world upon his release. After nine years, Larry was released from prison and he moved to Florida. He'd completed high school and about two years of college while incarcerated. He was paroled in 1992, and upon moving to Florida, he fell in love with a woman about 13 years older than him. The two married and divorced, but also had a daughter together named Bailey. Not long after that, he met his wife and soulmate, Christy. The two married in Florida, and their years together were described as the best of both his and hers. Unfortunately, Larry was unable to connect with his brother, Michael, because in 1990, Michael was arrested for his involvement with the murder of a man over a jar of quarters. Michael was essentially given 25 to life in prison for that murder. Christy tried her best to make up for the lack of love in Larry's life. She learned of his past from the roommate he was living with at the time. She got to know him and uncovered other horrid truths about his up entire upbringing, including things that happened within the Swartz home. The two created a life together despite that pain and trauma that Larry endured. Though she has worked to stay anonymous, the two helped raise Larry's daughter together. And Larry spent his days with family and new friends. He was a truck driver and people knew him as honest, compassionate, and just... Someone who wanted to do good. But in 1984, Larry was four months from graduation when he killed his parents. Some say that he could have easily walked away. 
But thinking about these abusive relationships, you never really can escape them. Or I should say, they're not that easy to just end or get away from or escape. I mean, think of these past holidays, how hard it is to set boundaries with loved ones. And if Larry was protecting Anne at the same time, there may have been more to these murders. Speaking of Anne, she and Larry did stay close and in contact. She considered him her knight in shining armor. There were so many mixed responses about this case, but Larry's loved one stayed by his side. He was, at the very least, a rehabilitated person. On December 29th, 2004, at the age of 38, Larry, or Lawrence Joseph Usulton, died of a heart attack. He was survived by his wife, brother, sister, daughter, daughter's mother, and an array of friends. He spent his final years with his family, enjoying the sun and the ocean, making a decent living, and just healing. Thank you all for joining me for today's case. It is time for our true crime fact of the episode. This one is about the true crime listeners. I heard somewhere recently that a girl is toxic if she listens to true crime shows or podcasts. Can you imagine Anyway, according to Supersummary.com, in one year, the average true crime consumer enjoys approximately 84 episodes of true crime TV, 44 chapters of true crime books, 34 episodes of true crime podcasts, and 20 true crime movies. And these numbers were even higher among women who consume significantly more than their male counterparts. Compared to just 33 chapters of true crime books consumed by men, women read 52. Similarly, women listen to considerably more podcasts and average about 19 more episodes of true crime TV than men. Two final thoughts about this case today. Abuse is never okay. If you are concerned or have seen danger or experience it yourself, Report a missing or abused child to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's Cyber Tip Line. They have a 24-hour hotline at 800-843-5678. And finally, everyone has a right to their own beliefs, but please remember to be respectful of others' opinions. And most importantly, feel validated in your own. We have to protect our women out here, and while I'm at it, Planned Parenthood accounts for less than 8% of services relating to abortion, meaning they also offer so many other services, both urgent and primary care. Everyone is entitled to privacy when addressing their health. We are entitled to our beliefs, and even if they are different than one another's, there is way more power in speaking and expressing with respect than any other avenue that is chosen. Thank you all for joining me please rate me five stars and send comments of positive love. Also, feel free to email me anytime if you want to chat. I am so grateful for all of you listening. I pray that 2024 is a good year for you and I. All my sources and photos are on IvanaSell.com and photos are also on Instagram at Crime. If you have any shows I should check out, or if anyone listening ever wants to collab, please message me. And with that being said, I will see you in a couple weeks, babes. 
safe journey. Keep walking in the light. Until next time, with love, Ivana Estelle.